<clears throat> okay, welcome ladies and gentlemen. This is another podcast of the Wisdom Factory Literary Society. And today we will be talking about the Mauryan Empire and delving into, I will be going explicitly and in, in depth on one of their great leaders that I think uh, is, is very underrepresented in the academic community. And he's a very interesting person to talk about. And his life embodies the central goal that we believe in here at the Wisdom Factory, and that is wisdom and virtue. And today you're going to get both of those things. Rarely do we have a podcast where both of these can be so thoroughly talked about, understood, and practical tips could be put out there for people to follow those two things, acquire wisdom and cultivate their virtue. But first I want to give you guys a preview of what I mean. And to do that, I'm going I'm to recite a quote here by Oshaka, which we will explain who he was and what he did and why he's relevant here. And that is, he said, no society can prosper if it aims at making things easier. Instead, it should aim at making people stronger. I believe that. Nick believes that. Uh, we hope you believe that. And that will be our attempt today to make you stronger um, through the understanding of this period in history and by understanding the life of Ashoka and understanding history and how empires rise and fall and how great men can change from a tyrant to a philosopher king and first we got to get context about this whole period the Myrian empire period so nick is going to do that and uh nick where do we start here where does the story start well uh we're gonna probably go with one of the most famous historical figures of all time alexander the great of macedonia mm-hmm. now everyone knows about the famous campaign of of the the great conqueror of Macedon, you know, goes into Persia, right. wipes the floor with them, and then starts reaching the uh, Indus River Valley, the beginnings of India. Mm-hmm. And uh, he invades India in 326 BCE, although that is a little questioned at times. But anyway, he was halted at the Battle of Hadaspis by the by the king of that area of the Bias River known as uh, King Porus, mm-hmm. or King Puru, depending on who you ask. And this was a very pitched battle, and it cost many lives. You could say, in some respects, it was a, uh, how do I put this, a Pyrrhic vict- victory in a sense. It cost a lot of manpower, and it drained the, I, I would say, the willpower and the morale of the troops. So he won the battle. He defeated King Porus, but he did it at a great cost. Lost a lot of men, a lot of great so. men, and you know. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's actually it's really debated. It's yeah. really debated even to now. Many mm-hmm. scholars will say that they're very unsure whether it is a victory, yeah. a pyrrhic victory, or it was just straight up inconclusive. That's the typical argument that they'll go with. It was mm-hmm. very much a inconclusive one. Well, real quick, Nick, why do you think it was a Pyrrhic victory? What were Because Alexander is usually known for winning at, at any odds and doing so in a conclusive manner. Mm. Why was this one so difficult for him to overcome? Well then, uh, from what I can read, according to Plutarch, in the Parallel Lives, the life of Alexander, mm-hmm. he writes it as follows. Plutarch. As for the Macedonians, however, their struggle against Porus blunted their courage and stayed their further advance into India. For having had all they could do to repulse an enemy who only mustered around 20,000 infantry, 2,000 horse, 
they violently opposed Alexander when he insisted on crossing the river Ganges. For they were told that the kings of the Gandharites and the Pricey were awaiting them with 80,000 horsemen, 200,000 ho footmen, 8,000 chariots, and 6,000 fighting war elephants. And there was no boasting in these reports. For Androcotus, who reigned there not long afterwards, made a, pre made a present to Seleucus of 500 elephants and with an army of 600,000 men, men overran and subdued India. Plutarch, Parallel Lives, Life of Alexander. Now, what he refers to here is that the mention of the 200 plus thousand footmen, he's referring to the Nandan Empire, mm -hmm. which existed at that same time. Mm -hmm. So for the troops, for them to hear about a militarily advanced society that could produce easily mm -hmm. three times the size of their own force, because what they mentioned here is, how can a small principality-like state be able to produce an army that is almost to the same size as Alexander's and be able to fight with the same tenacity as them. And if you were to go and research some of this in terms of King Porus with Alexander at the Battle of Hadaspes, you'll find references that say that the king was actually a very good ruler in many respects. It was con one of his kingdoms, was con the kingdom that he ruled was considered one of the greater ones in all of India which is very unique. Well, we will never know. We will never know. Uh, I tend to defend Alexander because he's been, he's been faced these odds before, attacking over a river, um, you know, outmanned maybe three to one in some cases, in some historical cases, like in, in Guagamela in the first battle. Um, so we don't know. He never fought those, that, that Indian army that you're speaking of, but we do know that his troops didn't even, they didn't want the fight. They didn't want, they didn't the, fight. want the fight. It's safe to say that they mutinied. Um, Alexander wanted to go. He was trying to get his army to uh, penetrate further into India. But at the battle that you mentioned, uh, the battle with King Porist, uh, a lot of sources indicate that he was grievously wounded. So mm -hmm. not only was it a Pyrrhic victory for his army, but it was a Pyrrhic victory for himself, his body, um, his, his feeling of invincibility. You know, this was one of the battles where he was injured um, almost more than all the other ones. If you've seen the movie uh, Alexander the Great, I think, you know, in maybe the early 2000s, they do a really good job of, of showing this scene. And it's, you know, these Indians are fighting with everything they've got, you know. It's, it's mm -hmm. Alexander's men are not used to, like, they almost call them beast-like people. And there's these Indians, and, and they're just fighting in ways that the, the Macedonians are not used to. And Alexander goes to his tried and true technique where he tries to go attack the Indian leader, the military leader, and does so and leaves his battle lines. And because he leaves his battle lines, he's, you know, he's vulnerable. He gets attacked by spears, by uh, arrows, by swords. Everyone's trying to kill him. And um, this is the battle where, to give you the, the sort of cost that he had to incur fighting the Indians in this instance, he lost his horse, his favorite horse, Bucephalus. This is the battle where, the, you know, various sources indicate that his horse fell. And so the psychological toll, you know, the, 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 the body count, you know, the physical count in his body, all these things added up. And then that was just a fraction of what the Indians had in reserve. And um, so, you know, his army rebelled. They didn't want to go. And Alexander 
could not convince them to continue further. Well, I mean, you could say at the same time that from what the Macedonian army was used to, mm -hmm. they were used to the Persian armies where, for the most part, they weren't exactly fully trained troops. Exactly. For the most part, they were very much conscripts, and the generals that they would face were typically ones of smaller caliber compared mm -hmm. to Alexander. Now, it's a different story if you were to go into India and then find out that there is a monarch yeah. who could, who has similar or almost the same capability yeah. as Alexander. Now, thinking of it like that, and also understanding that in terms of the Indian subcontinent, mind you, this isn't just one small kingdom in the Nandan Empire. There's mm -hmm. like at least a dozen kingdoms, yeah. each one of their own respect, trying to win over each other and gain an advantage. So mm -hmm. you're definitely facing kingdoms that are used to either fighting larger opponents or opponents that are very much well-trained. So, so how does Alexander's failed conquest of India translate into the birth of this great empire that we're about to speak of, the Mauryan Empire? Well, that's a good question, because in terms of the troops, the reason why they left was, again, the, the mention according yeah. to Plutarch. Now, the way I saw it was that it created a snowball effect. Now, mind you, I'm not saying it in the sense that Oh, the Indians could learn many tactics from the Greeks. I'm sure mm -hmm. that there were, yeah. but not nearly to the same degrees, again, because they were used to all this fighting. But what this did create, on the other hand, what made it interesting was that Alexander the Great, he had to go through the Hindu Kush, through the mountain ranges in Afghanistan. And what that did was create a new set of trade networks that would continue on to the modern day. Mm -hmm. So this was part of the reason of opening a trade network between the East and the West. Now, this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy because we're gonna talk about the founder of the Mauryan Empire, Chandragupta Maurya. Now, forgive me if I mispronounce these names. I am not Indian or speak the Hindi, Hindi, yeah. Hindi language. Now, it says here, depending on, what ha depending on what source you read, it was Chandragupta was around and served in disguise under the Macedonian army around the time of the Battle of Hadaspis and gained recognition by Alexander. Mm -hmm. Now there's that story, and then there's the story of the ch his father is a chieftain, so he's the son of a chieftain that got killed, and while his mother was pregnant with Chandragupta, Chandragupta fled, in a sense, mm -hmm. to the capital of the Nandan Empire, mm -hmm. which I will not pronounce its name, because it's very difficult. And uh, he served basically in a pig farm. And as he was growing up his life in that time period, a minister, a very well-known minister, who will write a book very, that I'll mention later on, named Chanakya. And Chanakya was, apparently was insulted by the Nandan king mm -hmm. for being uh, ugly, impotent, you know, all those type of, con all these type of Ooh. views. Yeah, he didn't take yeah, that, he didn't like that. No one likes that. So he swore that he was going to destroy the Nandan empire, specifically the king. But he didn't really have an army, he, he was a minister, so he knew a lot, but he couldn't do a lot. Right. However, he met this kid, Chandragupta Maurya, who would... According to some, said that uh, he was playing with other kids in his village and pretended to be a king of a court. And he would do all these mock trials, these mock courts and military movements. And the minister said something along the, saw something along the lines of, 
I saw talent in him, so mm -hmm. I'm going to train him mm -hmm. so that he could fulfill my wish. Real quick, Nick, was Chanchagupta Myra or Maria, mm -hmm. was he born of an aristocratic family? Was he born lowly? Because you know, the, in, in the Indian, the caste system is pretty much uh, the dominant um, right. social stratification mechanism. Where was he born on that, uh, on I, that ladder? Do we have any say, sources? I would say it kind of depends on the faith because if we're talking about the idea of the caste system, that's more in common with the Hindu system, not necessarily mm -hmm. Jainism or right. uh, Buddhism that would become famous under Ashoka's reign. Mm -hmm. But Chandragupta, he is a Jainist. He, he follows the Jainist well, faith. Was his so parents, it's a little bit different. Were his parents uh, kings, tribal leaders? What, what, what um, were his parents? I like guess I said, there, it's very mythological. There's not really any concrete views on it. Mm -hmm. It seems to be he's either a lowborn or in the best case scenario, he was the son of a chieftain. It was either maybe potentially some <laughs> so type either of nobleman. Yeah. Like, we don't know. I, I don't uh, know. The, the, um, the sources that you can get on this particular subject are not the best. We can only go by what we have. And a lot of those are religious, um, you know, religious texts mm -hmm. by the Buddhists, the Jainists, the yeah, Hindus. Through the Vedic yeah, writings and, 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 and they, all that. And, um, you know, they could sort of play with the, with the facts here. Um, well, mind you, but, it's like over 2,000 years old. So, yeah, so it's, it's kind of like anything from ancient history, you know. Um, they didn't have an extensive written culture, literary culture. So, a lot, like, it's not like these are government sources where they have records of his birth and who his parents were and all of these things. But there is a consensus that, you know, the majority of what we're going to present here, such as the story of his rise and the creation of the kingdom, um, the, the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle of it. You know, we're, we're, so... Either he, whether he was a lowborn or whether he was born of, a, of an aristocratic a, family. Maybe a lower level aristocrat, maybe. Who, yeah. Who knows? I mean, it's, bo both are possible. But the important thing here is that you said someone saw merit in this person and they wanted to train him mm -hmm. in the arts of governance. At least that's from what I can tell. Now, mm -hmm. again, this is all b based on conjecture or... Mm -hmm. Uh, depending on what source you read, right? So, and I'm sure there are even other articles or people in India that would say otherwise. Then this is all from what I can find. Yeah. Now, anyway, in terms of the now past the myths and legends of Chandragupta Maurya, um, what happened later on is a little half myth, half truth. Because around the time that he became of age, this is all within the same time period that Alexander the Great is invading India. This is all around the same time. And at the time that Alexander was, had a mutiny and had mm -hmm. to go back, yep. go turn around because his troops wanted to go back, uh, two years afterwards, Chandragupta was not only able to take down the Nandan Empire, which was an empire that scared the mm -hmm. hell out of the Macedonians, yeah but was able to take back the eastern satrapies or provinces, let's call it here in the west, the provinces of the Indus River Valley that Alexander had conquered. Now, I'm gonna backtrack a little bit because I messed up here. Uh, in terms of the Nandan Empire, what Chandragupta did, he was something along the lines of asymmetrical warfare or guerrilla tactics led with advising of uh, Chankia mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or Chandakia. And originally, he tried going for the capital, which, according to what I read, it didn't really work. Yeah. And then there's this little lore, this little myth that said that after this campaign, 
as he was returning from that campaign, he saw a mother and child, and the child tried to go and eat the center of the meal. And his mother, the child's mother, stopped him and said, don't act like Chandragupta by going for the core and skipping the frontier, the outer edges. You need to go for the outer edges first before you can enjoy mm -hmm. the finish of the core. Right. Chandragupta took up the heart and decided to follow the same tactic. He, mm -hmm. he went for the frontier regions because partially they weren't as well defended, they were more likely to get attacked, so it was easier to conquer. And then from there, started creeping its way into the capital and then mm -hmm. finally executing the king. Ooh. And from there, usurped the throne, took over the Nandans, and then took out the rest of the kingdoms all the way to the eastern portions of so the Macedonians. So he continued to conquer ruler after ruler, all of the leaders mm -hmm. of the different well, yes, sections of India. Because thanks to this guerrilla campaign, what's interesting about guerrilla campaigns is that it's much easier for you to gain alliances, especially from the frontier areas, the fringes, or the downtrodden. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting here is that, like I said before, the Nandas were able to field hundreds of thousands of troops. Yeah. Very well trained, very well armed. You know yeah. what Ma what Chandragupta was able to do? He was able to do something similar, except produce something at least twice the size. Yeah, and included the Macedonians in this too. So he definitely had experience. So let troops. me ask you this, Nick. So at this point in the story, you've got somebody who is meritocratic. This is somebody who's basically in this position based off his own intelligence, his own competence. Um, why... I mean, it, to me, it's obvious that at this point, there's 30 million people in India, and so that, there's a lot of resources to be gained there in terms of taxes. And so from what I've understood is that you, in India at this time, it was common that you conquer a land so that you could increase your tax base mm -hmm. and you could increase your military, which would then allow you to conquer the next land, and then you can do the same thing yep. over and over. Um, but what was another reason? Why did he want to conquer all of this land? Was there anything about unifying India? Was there anything about spreading culture? Or was it just simply about, uh, you know, geopolitical dominance in this region? Hmm. I would put it along the lines of originally it was because of the minister's hatred towards the Nandan king. Mm, okay. And he realized, both the minister and Chandragupta realized, you know what, it's probably better... If we were to get rid of them, it would just cause a power vacuum. Yeah. And in terms of greatness, why not just do something similar and prevent outside a foreign intervention, for instance, the Macedonians from yep. ever do, ha having that happen again, and they won't have to have the chaos of what was happening previously, where mm -hmm. you had just a bunch of small principalities want, trying to one-up each other. Exactly. Yeah. So there is that perspective. It wasn't necessarily yeah. uniting the mm -hmm. kingdom per se because there wasn't really a sense of unity really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it was more of one of those evolving type of things you okay. got one dream taken care of and they thought okay we're probably gonna have to do something else from here and so um, later on here after the Nandan Empire was taken down and Chandragupta started taking the satrapies it was in 305 BC that Seleucid of the Seleucid Empire, one of the four generals of Alexander's. Mm -hmm. When Alexander passed away, his kingdom, his empire split into four. Uh, the most famous one that we're, the one that we're gonna be talking about is uh, the one that had the largest empire, which is very reminiscent of the Persian Empire. Right. So he ruled everywhere from Baghdad and Babylon, 
all the way to places like Lahore in uh, modern-day Pakistan. So, he tried to retake the eastern uh, satrapies, but he failed in that conquest. Uh, Chandragupta was able to overpower him, and in order to prevent further humiliation and also to not get invaded from the other generals, Seleucus decided to make a deal. He gave Kabul, Kandahar, Baluchistan, and gave them to the Mauryan Emperor. In exchange, you would have this uh, marital alliance so that there wouldn't be any conflict between the two. So Chandragupta was not only able to get a Seleucid wife, a Greek princess basically, but he was able to gain an alliance with a very powerful nation and in exchange he gave 500 of his prized war elephants uh, to Seleucus I, which Seleucus was able to use in a very important battle at the Battle of Issus in 331 BCE. So, but that's a little bit more of a fun fact type of thing. Mm -hmm. So, what also made interesting in terms of Chandragupta and the reason why his army was so good compared to the other kingdoms was that it was paid by the state. It was very much a professional military. Mm, okay, standing army type thing. Mm -hmm. Very much a standing army, like I said before, paid directly from the state. And Chandragupta and his advisor, Chandrakia, passed a series of administrative and economic reforms throughout the empire. Now, Chandragupta applied a form of statecraft that Chandrakia was able to write, which is, is called the Arthashastra, I'm sorry, please forgive me for this, the Arthashastra. And this is a text which in the West, are the closest equivalent to this in the West would be Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince, which would show up in the 16th century. Now, in the West, we don't really know much about this Arthashastra, but this book was tied, was set as a form where uh, what an M what an empire would be like, how a monarch should rule, basically how a government should survive and with a society. So, so it, was, it was a very early attempt at political science, which is mm -hmm. something that a lot of historians will credit, you know, Machiavelli as sort of the first one to look at the practical side of how yeah. to govern, how to um, obtain power. Um, but no, um, and this is something that I didn't know before we started doing this research. I don't know if you knew this, but that's why it's important to like increase your knowledge of different, um, you know, countries and different nationalities and different empires in history. Because no, Machiavelli wasn't the first one. That credit, at least up until now, should go towards um, you know this guy. What is it? What was his name? Chanakia. Uh, <laughs> uh, Chanakia, who was actually um, did a Machiavelli type political science book a manual for leaders, if you will, um, right. or almost, at least, or at least this is what 1200 some, years before Machiavelli, right? Or at least this is what some scholars say. Some mm. say it's similar to the art of war where mm. it took an amount of time yeah. for it to develop. So mm. parts of it was redacted. Some part was enhanced. Real quick. So, do we have anything about what he was trying to um, put out there? Like what were the central ideas of this um, political uh, philosophy thing? Yes, however, I want to at least explain a little bit of why it's not, this book is not that famous, yeah. unless you're from India. Right. And it's that apparently during the 12th, in the mid 12th century, it was, the, uh, the book was lost. Mm. So it wasn't until about 
1905, 1904 to 1905 that it was rediscovered by an Indian scholar and it wasn't put into English translation until 1909. So that's little more than 110 years ago. So it's relatively interesting mm -hmm. that it was brought back from mm -hmm. basically from the grave. Yep. So anyway, you were asking me exactly how this empire was structured and how the book detailed it. Yeah, yeah, what's, okay. in, the, what's in the book basically Well, that we know? Okay, well, like I said before, Chandragupta applied a bunch of this into his statecraft. Mm -hmm. So it was organized into territories, the Janapada, the centers of regional power were protected with fortifications, Durga, and the state operations were funded by with the treasury, the Kosa. Infrastructure, irrigation, temples, mines, and road networks were what was the main aspects of how to start up and contain a society mm -hmm. or to make it prosperous. Mm -hmm. And then the regional prosperity, this is where it gets interesting. Regional prosperity was one of the required duties of the state officials. So basically for a governor to be a governor, they need to make sure that the regional uh, prosperity of that territory is maintained or even amplified. So that's what would make a good governor. Wow. So the now mind you, irrigation was enhanced by Ashoka when he took power. And this system remained for at least 400 years until it was renovated. So you could almost characterize it as a uh, political platform. This is um, a, a, a political platform where we're going to focus on infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We're going to focus on uh, certain aspects of governance. To me, that's what it kind of seems like. It, like you likened it to uh, a progressivism. It has aspects of, pro it echoes progressivism where you're focusing on internal development. Um, a lot. Well, you could say progressivism or you could say just in general capitalism or even mm -hmm. state capitalism mm -hmm. or you could even say socialism depending on who you ask mm -hmm. because if you were to go by the Stalinist point of view well then he built up the nation from an agricultural society to a superpower mm -hmm. but at the cost of millions of lives so yeah. it really depends on how you interpret it. Mm -hmm. Now back on to uh, Ashoka and the Arthashrata it was highly considered that the economic prosperity of any region or the nation as a whole was essential to the pursuit of the Dharma, the morality, which adopted a policy of avoiding war with diplomacy, yet continuously preparing the army for war to defend its interests and other ideas within the book. So that's where I would say it's very similar to the prince, saying how to defend the nation, how to pursue your interests, and also prevent the nation from either being attacked both internally or from foreign aggression. Now, uh, let's see, I already mentioned about some of these details. Okay, it also details how the nature of government, the law, uh, civil and military. I'm sorry, there's a, a bee on my arm. <laughs> there's a bee on Nick's arm, y'all. Anyway, Can I kill it? Can I kill it? Oh, now it's coming from me. But anyway, it's the law, Get civil, and criminal. Get away, I will kill you, B. I don't want to. All right, B's dead. <clears throat> Sadly, we can't have honey on that one. Uh, but anyway, it the uh, the Arthashrata or Shutra. Uh, it details the nature of government, law, civil and criminal court systems, ethics, economics, markets and trade, mm -hmm. duties and the obligations of the king or the ruler. Okay. And uh, 
It incorporates a lot of Hindu philosophy, including ancient economic and cultural details in terms of agriculture, mineralogy, mining, medicine, animal husbandry, forests and wildlife. So this is where it brings in the argument that this is a text that has been constantly built upon over the centuries. And it also, this is also what I find interesting. It explores the issue of social welfare. And this is where the progressivism comes in. That the collective ethics that hold the society together, it advises the king slash ruler, <clears throat> excuse me, to initiate public projects such as the irrigation waterways, building forts around major strategic holdings in towns, while also exempting taxes of those affected. So if you want to look for a modern day comparison, I would say probably FDR's New Deal. Hmm. I would say it's very similar to that in order to keep the nation going or at least revitalize the economy. Now, earlier I men mentioned what the Dharma is, according to the Ardhashram, Ardhashruta. And I have a sutra here by, by Chanakya, and it goes like this. The root of happiness is Dharma, ethics, righteousness. The root of Dharma is Artha, mm -hmm. economy and polity. The root of Artha is right governance, is victorious inner restraint. The root of victorious restraint is humility. The root of humility is the serving the age, the mm -hmm. serving the aged. Mm -hmm. So that is how Sonakia described it or how the kingdom was described. And if you had to look for a really close comparison of what this sutra displays mm -hmm. it would be ashoka okay well real quick nick before we get into ashoka which uh, i'm more than ready to do how do we get from because there's a step that that needs to be connected in uh bundusara bundusara oh bundusara. So, so how yeah. does um chanjagrupta how does his reign then transfer onto bundusara and then his transfers mm. into ashoka what do we know about that period in between before we start okay Going there. Well, other than military conquests, so they continue to conquer. Mm -hmm. They continued to conquer either because of people deciding to declare war on them, mm -hmm. outside influence, or strictly war. for strategic purposes. Okay. Um, there's not a, oddly enough. There's not as much information when it comes to Bundesada. Mm -hmm. However, it does say that he was an exceptional ruler. Yeah. He's one of the three Mauryas, the first three kings, the first great kings. Yeah. Um, what's, what makes Bundesara exceptional was one because of leadership, but also that he also did improvements throughout the throughout the realm, especially mm -hmm. in the conquered territories. So, so he's kind of more of the same. He was maintaining yeah, and, he and was, furthering, further developing the empire that his father had mm -hmm. built. Uh, if anything, he was solidifying yes. the kingdom. He was okay. solidifying it from what Chandragupta did, because what I mentioned before. Chandra Gupta, he seems to be one of those characters that he had the talent, but he did not have the knowledge of how to implement it. Mm -hmm. That's why he had the minister. Mm -hmm. And Bindasara is of a similar caliber, yes. and he was being taught a lot of what uh, Chandakya, the minister, was able to teach to Bindasara. Unfortunately, Bindasara would pass away. Yeah. So, well, so I think that's where I can take it over, the transition mm -hmm. from Bundesara into Ashoka. Because one of the things that we know about Bundesara is that he was getting busy. A yes. lot of wives, a lot of children, and uh, Ashoka was not the first. Ashoka was actually, his mother was a lowborn woman. Yes, his father was the king, Bundesara, 
but his mother was lowborn. So when it comes to um, the pecking order, the line of succession, Ashoka was nowhere near the top. And this would come into play uh, throughout the first portion of his life here. Um, so, so Ashoka to me is one, of, is one of the great characters, more colorful characters in this history period. There's a lot more um, sources that talk about his life and that's why this portion is probably gonna be a little bit more detailed. Um, it still has that sort of convoluted nature where you have Hindu sources, you got Jain sources, you got um, what, what did I miss? Buddhist sources. Mm -hmm. You still got you know his sources, which are the best sources because he wrote these edicts, which give you some insight into who he was and his transformation um, and in his reign. Um, but you still have a lot of resources to pick and choose from, and I'm going to be throwing uh, a lot of these out there. Um, so we do know that he was born in Taxila, which was a, philosoph a philosophical center. This was a place where ideas were readily talked about. I mean, this period in India is one of the most um, academically uh, fertile environments that you could be born in in this, mm -hmm. in this type of time period. I mean, you had a lot of religious ideas, you know, Jainist ideas clashing with um, early Buddhist ideas, clashing with, you know, Hinduistic ideas, tribal ideas. And it was... The, um, the one of the things that the Mauryan Empire did really well in was cultivating an environment of tolerance to where these ideas could be debated, these ideas could be talked about. As long as no one was outright challenging the empire, mm -hmm. these things, you were actually encouraged to um, you know, learn how to articulate yourself and study these different uh, philosophies and um, get into academic um, debates. And that was basically a place where Ashoka grew up. And you know, the sources say that he was very good in two key skills which would play into what he was going to become. I mean, if you're going to be a king and a ruler, uh, at this period in time, you had to be sufficient in these two skills, weaponry and academics. You had to show that, look, you knew how to handle yourself on the battlefield. You knew how to lead men. You knew how to strategize. You knew how to win. You knew how to conquer. You knew how to defend. Those were uh, the primary things that a leader would have to do. And he showed... Uh, proficiency in there he was excellent in there to a point where his brothers began to notice that hey uh, we got to be careful because Ashoka is a little bit too good in his campaigns he's always speaking up he's always got these ideas about how to conquer and uh, we need to watch him but not only that because his brothers had some of that you had to have some of that if you're going to mm -hmm. be a ruler you had to have some of that you were very well taught in that but his intelligence was something that separated him from the pack. It would, it's what gave him his natural dignity. He, he was known to be very good at perceiving, at uh, being objective on things, um, you know, uh, of, of interpreting things in, in ways that other people weren't interpreting. He was just a very bright and brilliant guy. And um, these two things sort of got him the notice of the ministers, which plays a very important role in this period because like uh, Nick has told you before, um, the ministers played a heavy role in the administration of this empire because you had the you had the the uh, the the emperor obviously calling the shots, but he would uh, you know decide what needs to be done or take advice from the ministers, and um, obviously he had the final say. 
obviously he was the most powerful voice in the room, but he did delegate a lot of responsibility to these ministers. I'm sorry, you, you're referring to Ashoka, right? No, no, no. I'm referring to how you talked yeah. about um, uh, Chandragupta. Yeah, you're right. How, how, yeah, how he was more focused on, you know, the bare bones conquering yeah, and stuff it, like that. Yeah, because if we had to put it in any respect, because uh, Chandrakia, mm -hmm. he was in a I forgot to mention this, that he was a kind of a traveling scholar in a mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. So he walked around, started, he would learn things or apply them to his life. And mm -hmm. Chandragupta, um, unfortunately, there's no detailed accounts yeah. to his childhood. So more of the, he to was me, he, more he, of a student. He seems more of the Philip, whereas Ashoka is more of the Alexander. Yes, very much so. And I, I would very much agree with you on that. Okay, yeah. So, you know, Alexander united both. He was uh, just, as, uh, just as a military warrior as Philip was, but he also had this this intelligence, this competence. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so what that brings us to is he was growing up and the ministers liked him. And his brothers were very autocratic. His, very, his, his brothers that were next in line for the throne were very autocratic. And it's interesting because, because you have Bundesara, who's the father, who knows, he's like, he's torn. He's, when you read the story, to me, it seems like he's torn. Because in the beginning, he sends Ashoka to govern a province that is crucial to the empire. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I'm not sure what the, what the name is, but it was in central India, and this, this location was important because it was an administrative hub. May I? It was a, it was a very... What are, what are you trying May to... I see it? Oh. Because well, I might be able to know well, what you're talking about. Um, I, I don't really have the... Okay. Maybe I, I, it'll probably come up later. But the yeah. point is, is that it's an administrative center that's in like central India that has um, access to the sea. So it's a financial center. It's also a populous center um, to where, you know, you need administrative competence. I mean, it's really a big job. And Ashoka shines through. He demonstrates that, look, not only was he uh, proficient in weaponry and academics, but that he was a great administrator and that he was a great statesman. Um, and at this point, his skills in weaponry had evolved to now he was a great general. So now you have someone who's actually doing um, military, who's conducting military campaigns and defending and, and, and consolidating um, his administrative area. And he's also ad ad administering his province in a very good way and in, 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 in to where other provinces took notice of Ashaka for this. They were like, oh, this person, is someone that we need to pay attention of. Mm -hmm. He's actually bringing peace and harmony and, and prosperity, but he's still bringing the sword as well. And yeah. so what happens is his brothers see this and his father sees this. And then that's where the conflict begins because his father is like, I mean, you could imagine if you were a father and your son's doing this, you must be quite proud. You mm -hmm. know, look at this guy. He's a great general. He's a great uh, administrative person. This is somebody who can carry my empire on to the next level. But he's also caught in between, I guess, this tradition, the status quo, that um, you know, his brothers have more legitimate claims to the throne. They're born before him. Their mothers are more higher status. And so his brothers start to convince the father to put Ashoka in left field, as it were, to put him on a... They, they send him to go on a... Um, they send him to go on a, a, a military expedition to where there's these rebels in the eastern part of, um, of India. It's not quite Kalinga yet, but it's in that area, the eastern part of India. And they don't really give him the type of military uh, resources that he would need. 
But, and so it basically, it's, to me, it reminds me of how Rome was like, okay, Caesar, you can go ahead and fight um, Vercingetorix at the Siege of Elysia, but we're not going to give you any more, any more troops. We're not going to give you yeah. any more resources. You got to win on your own. Good it, luck. It's all, yeah, good luck, you know, and we secretly want you to lose. You know what I mean? To me, that's what, it, there's parallels here. So they send Ashoka on this fool's errand. There's no way he can win. This is a very populous area. It's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a rebel um, part that they've been having trouble with. And um, he goes there and they don't, they embrace him. They don't even fight him. They choose to lay down their weapons because they're like, oh, Ashoka is going to govern our region? His, his, his reputation preceded him as someone who was very super confident and someone who they can deal with. They saw him as reasonable. They felt like they could deal with Ashoka. And so there was really no great conflict. And so once he did that, um, they were like, okay, well, now what, now what are we going to do? That didn't work. So they actually sent him to Kalinga, which is, um, which, which this, there's the storms of war are starting to brew around this area of Kalinga, which is an eastern part of, of India. It's, it's mm -hmm. kind of next to the coast. And it's, 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 this is a section that um, the empire does not own. And from what I've gathered is that the previous two emperors have actually tried to conquer this territory and both of them have failed. So they know that, look, this is just, um, you know, this is a place that it's very difficult to conquer. So they sent Ashoka there, but, you know, the rebels, they don't embrace him. They, obviously, they want to kill Ashoka. They want to kill anybody who's part of the Mauryan Empire. But, um, you know, things get out of hand and the, sort of the, it's, it's, it's too much for him. And his father actually feels like, you know what, I need to call Ashoka back. Things are getting too bad over there. And they call him back. But when they call him back, he ends up dying. Mm -hmm. uh, Bundesar ends up dying. And so what happens is you have a struggle between his rulers, uh, I mean, his his firstborn legitimate sons that are going to make a claim for the throne and then Ashoka who at this point has demonstrated his merit and who has the support of the ministers and the ministers support him for two reasons the first reason is for what we've talked about he's a great general he's a reasonable person um, he's not afraid to fight and he's also very competent he's very smart he's very academic he's very he understands he understands things that the other the brothers just don't um, he's bright, whereas his brothers seem a little bit more dull, more militaristic. But this is the, this is the end all be all. His brothers are autocratic. So they don't even consult the ministers at the level of what the, the previous two um, emperors have. They sort of try to push the ministers out because they see the ministers as uh, encroaching upon their natural power. And so the ministers go to support Ashoka. And what happens, what happens here is where we really get a peek into... Um, how ugly Ashoka, I don't know if ugly is the word, but how dark he could be and how dark he was at this mm -hmm. point in his time because he was able to outmaneuver his brother and outmaneuver all of his brothers and he was able to defeat them in battle. And he killed, and remember how I talked about how, um, you know, one thing about Bundesara we know is that he was getting busy. He had apparently hundreds of kids because you got a harem you're sleeping with you know a bunch of women a lot and you have you know a, a lot of kids he killed from one source that i've got 99 of his brothers 99 of them wow. i mean yes that is brutal yeah. and not only did he kill them but he was known to have this they called it ashoka's paradise and what ashoka's paradise was was a torture facility. And he was so sadistic that 
he made sure that the outside looked as beautiful as it could possibly be. Kind of like this, you know, this scene right here. We got the, um, you know, fountain, we've got the trees, we have the leaves. This is an academic place, you get a good vibe from here. But Ashoka made sure that the outside looked beautiful, immaculate, gardens, fruits, everything you wanted. But inside, the most terrible things that you could possibly do to a human being, he was doing. It was said that no one that went in, who was to be tortured, ever came out. I don't know if that oh means they... God. Yeah, exactly. So it was, a, it was psychological torture. And this is where, you know, he needed to do this because he defeated his brother and all the people who sympathized with his brother. He tortured them in this kind of way. Mm. And, um, you know... I think I know the, the places that you were talking about, the province that he had to be in. Mm -hmm. I think I know what state that is in. And then also you okay. were asking what the, where the state of Kalinga was. Yeah. Well, first off, the, from what I know, uh, the governorship that he had to go over on the West Coast, mm -hmm. that's most likely Gujarat. Okay. Yeah. Because in the past, familiar. that used to be a very important trading area in India, and that was one of the few areas that was under uh, Chandragupta's reign and right. Bindasara. Now, in terms of Kalinga, that's in the modern state of Odisha, which in the past, to Europeans, it was called Orissa, which mm. was in the west, I'm sorry, on the east coast, just yeah. south of Bengal. Okay. Now, anyway, in terms of... Uh, so what do you think about Ashoka doing this type of torture to his brothers, to the sympathizers? I mean, this is pretty dark stuff, ain't it, Nick? You want my take on it? Uh, I would say, uh, how do I put this? Yeah, it was very much sadistic. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. That was very much horrible. It's a little bit over the line, isn't it? I would say it is over, over the line, in especially by the fact that you build a palace, but on the inside, it, it's yeah. basically a dungeon of torture. Exactly. It's, However, it's in terms of killing off the children, I mean, this isn't the killing off the siblings. It's not yeah. the first time that that has happened. Actually, yeah. a good example of this would be the Ottoman Empire in the early first few centuries of its existence. They would have this, uh, I'm sorry, there's a B, uh, fratricide. Fra fratricide? Or basically the killing of their own siblings or yes. children to make sure that they would never become opposition. The reason why I ask you, Nick, is because with Ashoka, it's important to, uh, and sources have been trying to do this ever since, to really illustrate how evil he was at this point in his life, hmm. how dark he was, how, you know, in Western society, how the most you can, can most, as close as you can get to the devil, you know, that's pretty much, to me, if you're doing this, you're right. You're, 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 right. you're stones throw away from that. You know? Right, you're, you would um, be calling him a tyrant. Yeah, a, a tyrant. Uh, but not only a tyrant, because a tyrant does bad things, but he's getting enjoyment. He's deriving, he's trying yeah. to uh, inflict suffering that's on a whole yeah. other level. Uh, a Caligula type. Yeah, a, exactly. Perfect. Perfect. A Caligula type kind of character that we have right here. Mm -hmm. And that's important because now he's done all that. He's consolidated his power. And, you know, now everyone is behind him and he has inherited this great empire that Nick has just built up. Um, well, Nick and the help of, <laughs> Nick and the, help of the two emperors uh, have built oh. up for you guys. He inherits this empire and his first thought is that, look, I need to go conquer some other areas because, um, you know, obviously that, that increases your tax base. But it seems like to me that he, he, he did this for two things, for two reasons. 
He chose Caligia, which was, as I said, a place where he had to retreat early, where his father had called him back before because it just seemed like, you know, it was, he was in danger. His life was in danger. Um, and so he wanted to conquer this place. And, you know, obviously he wanted to conquer it for the reasons that all emperors want to conquer anything, and that is because of resources. You want to plunder. You mm -hmm. want to take their gold. You want to take everything that they have. You want to make it your own. And you want to use those resources to support your state, as well as knocking out a potential enemy. Right. If so, I recall, um, Kalinga was a big trading country, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Big oh, yeah. Trader. Yeah. Good, good point, Nick. So let's talk about Kalinga a little bit, because I find Kalinga a very interesting uh, place at this time. And so Kalinga is, I would sort of liken it to Athens, but it's an entire province. It's not a city. But this is a city where they are known for their talents and their skills. They're known for their trades. You know, they're, they're, these are tradesmen. They are very, uh, they have a, a large navy. They are a naval power because they're engaged in all this trade. Um, but they're creating a lot of arts and crafts. They're very skilled people. They're not, I mean, I'm sure they've got agriculture, but they're so advanced that they've figured out a way to get beyond agriculture in some sense, as much as you could in a, in a, in a, a, in a society where feudalism dominates everything. And so, you know, it was a very scholarly place. It was a very cosmopolitan place. You had a bunch of people that, you know, all the trade networks that they had, um, and they were able to defend themselves. So they obviously had a lot of pride. You know, these were, this was a, a, a you know, a force to be reckoned with, um, just based off their, you know, their competence here, you know, based off of their skill. And so he wanted to conquer them, not only for their resources, but because I'm sure there was a, 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 a part of him that said, you know what, my two, my father and my grandfather failed, I'm going to succeed, you know. So that pride, you know, played, played a, a huge part in this. And so you have greed and pride, which is pushing him to try to conquer this land. Now that's important because we want to illustrate the vices, the vices that are controlling Ashoka. Um, Ashoka is going to have a, I would call it a come to Jesus moment, mm -hmm. but obviously we're dealing with Buddhists. So um, uh, with Buddhists and, you know, there's obviously aspects of, of early Hinduism in here, um, Jainism. And so he is basically doing this because of greed and pride. And he does not realize the cost that this war is going to have. He ends up uh, instigating a war against uh, Kalinga. And he completely plunders this this land and he completely destroys this land so his greed is satisfied because he plunders it and takes all the resources his pride is um is satisfied because he destroys this place but he he looks around at all the carnage and this cost three hundred thousand lives three hundred thousand people die at least at least that doesn't even account the 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 thousand the hundred thousands that he deported from this land but he basically has to, I mean, these people fought to the death and they only, the sources say that they only lost the war because of the carnage and the attrition and that there was no one else to fight. Mm -hmm. There it was, was no one. Truly total war. Yes, it, it was total war, exactly. So they, he, he lost this battle because they had fought to the last man and he had defeated the last man. And so, um, you know, he looked around and saw the destruction of this formal, former vibrant society, this great arts and culture uh, hub, this great trading yep. hub, and he looked around and saw nothing but smoke and ashes. The fatherless families. Yes, the fatherless families, no the, the orphans, the old people, and it was, it was hell on earth. 
And to give you guys a little bit of a, of a picture in your head, think of, think of modern day Syria. Think of modern day Syria, how that kind of is, right? Everything is exploded, you've got children everywhere, no one knows, there's orphans and it's just hell on earth. And he created this and he had to, and he was like, why did I create this? Just, he, you know, he had to do some soul searching. And mm -hmm. he was looking around and, you know, the sources say that uh, he was converted by Buddhist monks, but I'm sure that Ashoka had to come to terms with what he's done and what he's seeing and figure out why did this happen? And the answer lied within him. The answer was within him. And so during this personal exploration, because Ashoka was very smart, he was very brilliant. It wasn't something that he was, just, that he was gonna just put behind him. Uh, he went to the Buddhist monks and he learned more about Buddhism and he learned more about Buddhist practices and, and sort of the Dharma that you're talking about. And it completely changed him, a change of heart. He decided from this on, from this point on forward, he was not going to be someone who waged war for conquest. Mm -hmm. He was still very adamant that, look, if you're trying to, he kept the standing army. He still understood that you have to defend what you have. But the period of expansion had pretty much ended uh, with Ashoka realizing that, you know, this just isn't the way to govern an empire. Right. I guess the best way you would, would you put it something along the lines of, after that time, after that moment in Kalinga, after that victory, he had become a stern father figure at that point. I think it's a very fair, it's a very fair, yeah, a stern father, because a stern father is, you know, if you mess up, he's gonna keep you in line. Mm -hmm. But he's not a tyrant father. Yeah, he's not a he's tyrant not, he's father. Not a, he's not he's, a tyrant. He's gonna be arbitrarily trying to find faults in what you're doing, even if you're not doing anything. But he will definitely wrong. try to direct you in the right way so that you don't yes. make the mistakes of what the father made. I think that's a perfect analogy because that the stern father keeps the discipline, mm -hmm. and that's kind of what Ashoka then began to do. And he did, and 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 then he became the ideal ruler, someone who we just talked about had these his paradise prisons, and who just killed 300,000 people. Just to give you a little bit of context, Nick, at this time in India, there was 30 million people. He killed 300,000 of them. That's, by my math, 0.02%, which if you converted it to America, that would be... Wait, wait, wait a minute. You said 30 million? And only 30 million, three, yeah. 300,000. Yeah. Three, That's 1%. 30, yeah. 30 million... And I think it's 0.01%, 0.01%. Hmm. Yeah. And so if you put that in America today, that's, that's 3 million. So that's like, that's like if there was a war in America and we lost 3 million people, we've never lost 3 million people in a war. Not really. We have that, is a, that is a World War II scale type conflict. Mm -hmm. And remember at this time, there is no machine guns that can take out 20 people in five seconds. Yeah, this is all there, spears, exactly. arrows, shields, there's and no, elephants. There's no artillery that's going to take out 50 guys at one time. There's no plane bombs that are going to dive in and take out entire platoons. No, this is hand-to-hand -hand combat arrows. This is face-to-face -face type carnage. Fires, yep. everything, elephants. the whole night. The whole, and three elephants, three million deaths was what is what it would be in today so I mean try to imagine that in your head that type of carnage and so that's what transformed him into this ruler um, and just to explain a little bit because now it gets into the area where it's more in line of what we believe here at the wisdom factory you know the mm -hmm. cultivation of virtue and he becomes a paragon for virtue and someone who we can all learn from um, 
So he goes on these spiritual, spiritual journeys. He becomes like a monk. And you can imagine this guy's an emperor, right? He just, he just, he just consolidated his empire. He expanded the borders um, of his empire. But now he's sort of trying to go on this spiritual journey and learn a little bit more about the wisdom that these Buddhists uh, and that these other, these other monks and uh, you know, shaman-type people have to offer. And he comes to the realization that um, Dharma is the most important thing in life. Dharma is how everyone, how everyone should behave. And what Dharma is, is it's, it's not a, Dharma is a behavior. So it's how you act, how you interact with the world, how you do things, that is in, accordance, is in accordance with the highest ideals of duty, order, virtue, and law. So obviously it's like, it's, he believes in a, they believe in a natural law. It's kind of like an Aristotle thing, how a, a, a flower's purpose is to blossom, you know, or a river's purpose is to flow whatever way it's flowing, you know, doing what it was designed to do. He believed that humans were designed to follow this natural order, and that natural order, order dictated that they become righteous, that they, you know, do the right thing at the right time to the right people for the right reasons. And so, um, in order to do that, you needed moral purification. You really had to understand, uh, you know, what you were doing, and you could not fall into the opposite, which was the vice. And so, in, 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 in these traditions, in India right now, they give you a little bit of context to what that means. And you could, you know, I think this is a, Hindu, this is a Hinduistic interpretation, but Dharma has its has connotations in, in Hinduism as well as Buddhism. It's a word that's used in Indian society. It, it means a lot of things. Dharma means a lot of things. Um, but at the end of the day, they all have the same spirit. And so that's why you can, you can look at this the explanation and it'll match up with the Buddhist explanation. And so it's like contrasting violence and healing. So instead of inflicting pain and suffering on people, you're trying to help them over, um, to ease their suffering or to heal them from their infirmities and their pain. Uh, you're trying to heal them instead of, instead of hurt them. Um, and this was interesting. This is what I thought was interesting because I haven't noticed this uh, explicitly stated in other forms of moral ethic teaching. And that is um, falsehood and, and calumny versus truthfulness and fact. So to be righteous, you have to tell the truth and you have to uh, use facts. You can't deceive, you can't lie, you can't use falsehoods, you can't attack people's character. You've got to represent reality as it truly is. Another thing was that, um, and this is another interesting thing, is that to be truly dharmatic, to be in accordance with dharma, you couldn't go out and just deny that morals didn't exist. That's something that they actually thought that was important. You can't go out there and say dharma doesn't exist, virtue doesn't exist, morality doesn't exist. That in itself is a form of um, ad dharma, the opposite of dharma, the vices. Um, you had to be faithful to them, you had to profess them, you had to uh, believe in them, you had to have faith in them. That's another important aspect. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of like another, another, you know, kind of like what Nick touched on. Then you get to the more Buddhist interpretation, which is moral righteousness, uh, pros you know, prosperity, of, you know, having economic values so that you can have the resources to live the life that you need. They thought that was important. You had to go out there you, you, and, and figure out how to support yourself uh, in, the, in a material world. Um, psychological wellness, that was also something that um, Ashoka was very, was very 
adamant about is psychological health, taking care of yourself psychologically, making sure that you're in a peaceful state. Um, and another one was liberation of spirit. And now that's an interesting one to me. I, I, I really, really like that one. I think it's interesting. And to do that, obviously, you have to figure out, you know, like you kind of said, what your desires are and free yourself from the desires but also having a true understanding of the world and your place in it and understanding that you have the choices. You have the ability to choose your path forward as long as you're not you know, overstepping your bounds of the law, as long as you're obedient, but to liberate your spirit, educate yourself, become righteous, become strong, and um, you know, free yourself from whatever ignorance you were in or whatever bondage you were in or whatever vices you were living in, living in, you could liberate yourself. And so, you know, basically he becomes a spiritual man, but he has to transform himself. And then once he transforms himself, he then transforms the way that he governs. And that's where it gets really interesting because he does put up these edicts. He does start these programs, which um, manifest the uh, political uh, document that you referenced earlier that was kind of like Machiavelli, he puts those into practice. And um, so, in, you know, back in this day, this is unprecedented. You have to understand that we're talking about ancient classical eras. And, you know, if you're a ruler, you're an emperor, you're focused on, you know, how to have the best entertainment at your dinner, how to make sure that the military is running well. You do not care about the lives of the daily pleb the average citizen, the everyday person, the everyday Joe out there, uh, you know, working at, at the cow dung factory or whatever, or the elephant dung mm -hmm. factory. But Ashoka actually makes it a, a, a part of his administration to go out and talk to the common people and to try to help them understand that their welfare is his number one priority now. It isn't the welfare of, you know, the, the, obviously it's the empire, but he believes the, the best way to create a strong empire is to empower the people. And that's a fundamental shift that we don't see happening a lot in ancient rulers is where they focus on the everyday person and making them strong. And that's one of the things that he did that was, to me, very interesting, that, you know, he, he, he focused on these people. But here's an interesting a concept that Ashoka had and this is why I, I would call it more progressive as, as opposed to libertarian, is because Ashoka believed that people need to be influenced or people needed to be pushed to also practice moral, dharmatic behavior. It wasn't just about the ruler being the, the philosopher king ruler type ruler. No, the people had to do their duty as well. So it wasn't just about a wise administration that was, you know, was doing all these infrastructure projects, making sure that uh, everything was paid for, that you know, there was no wars defending the empire. The people themselves had to become more righteous. And it, he made it his mission to cultivate that among them. Now, he didn't kill people if they didn't subscribe to his beliefs. He didn't try to, you know, he wasn't ty tyrannical about it. He just offered his values over and over. He made sure that everyone knew his values. And that's something that we don't really, in, in, in an American context, that's not something that we believe a ruler should be doing. A ruler shouldn't tell us how we should believe or feel or what moral values we should put as first and foremost. You know, like, to me, that doesn't seem like something that we do here in America. I see, how do you feel about that, Nick? Like sort of having a, 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 an embodiment of morals and then saying, you need to change your behavior and be more like this. Is that something that you see that, that American government does? Right now? I would say 
I, w I would say yes in that regard. Mm -hmm. The American society does do that because, mind you, if you go by in terms of how America operated or mm -hmm. rather how it was born and or the principles that it uses, they're very specific yeah. or they're very much inspired by them. Now, uh, if we were to talk about <coughs> uh, whether they impose it on other people, I would <coughs> say it's more like a set of guidelines that, look, we want you to follow these set of principles so that one, you can better fit with society and that we won't have any type of disputes that are going to harm society as a whole. So that's where I would say yes, but not to the point of basically shoving it down someone's yeah. throat. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems institutional. It seems institutional. And what Ashoka's doing, he's calling on the people to do something. It's kind of like, ask not what your people can do for you. I mean, ask not what the government can do for you. Ask what you can do for the government. That's kind of the only time that I hear this kind of uh, governmental philosophy being used. Because in the presidential debate, I don't hear anything about what is proper moral behavior. Yeah. I don't hear anything about what's how, the right way of doing yes, things. Yes, what's the right way of doing things. It's, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how it's going to benefit the country. Well, the Shogun's saying, here's what you need to do for this country to be great. Yeah. Um, and, and we do, I think, at an institutional level, at a, at a, at a cultural, traditional level, we do do these things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's but, what I was going to say. In yeah. terms of a cultural sense we do. and legal sense, I would say yes. for the most part, yes. Because if you start having a whole different thing coming to play, like I said before, you're going to cause disputes or m miscommunication. Uh -huh. So you need to have a set of standards. Otherwise, yes. it's not going to work, especially for a society like the United States, where you need to have those standards. Because yeah. if you have someone, say, from another culture that follows a whole different set, yeah, that society, that... Becomes those, corrupt. Yeah, well, it's not just whether they can become corrupt or not, or rather you got two different groups that have two different ways of viewing things and it becomes a lot harder to govern when you have a multiple, mm -hmm. uh, uh, what's the right Multiple word? interpretations of what's yes, right. Yes, multiple interpretations that can be, uh, what's the right word? Seen as true. Uh, no, confrontational with okay. each other. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so he did that and you know he made it his number one priority to make the lives better for the people. Now, isn't that what we all want from our rulers, right? For them to be, you know what? I don't care what's going on in Afghanistan. I'm not trying to make their lives better. I want your life to be better. How can I help you? You know, and that's, right. that's, 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 that's a big thing. That's a huge thing. And that's what makes him rare. Um, he actually made that uh, leap. Um, and so he did some interesting things in his administration that are worth pointing out. The first is he started one of the first uh, recorded, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but like institutional healthcare system. Um, obviously back then it was down to herbs and medicine, but he made it a priority to set up institutions that would heal not only people, but cattle for some reason. Um, he wanted to make sure that he really had a thing for all life. And so he made sure that if you were sick, you were going to be healed. If they had a cure for you, he was going to make sure that um, under his administration, you were going to find access to a way to heal you from whatever infirmity that yeah. you had. There are only a few societies uh, roughly around the same period or mm -hmm. before that have done something similar. Uh, the only ones I can think of right now are pretty much the Chinese, the Egyptians, the Persians to a, yeah, the Persians, Achaemenid Persians. Uh, the Greeks to a lesser extent, and then near the end of the Roman era, they've had something like mm -hmm. that, but it, 
it wasn't that common per se in yeah. the age of antiquity. Yeah. It was more of the herb type. Yeah. But as they conquered other societies, they uh-huh. adopted those pieces. Yeah. So, so I, th- I would and, and this was and this was something that I that I that I'm pretty sure that he felt was I mean, because if you think about it, if you value the people, and there's a guy over there who's sick, you know, he's got, uh, you know, he's got a virus, he's got like lupus or something, and you can heal him. And what happens if you heal this guy? He no longer has to be stuck, you know, in his room, coughing, wheezing. Or um, even being a, a burden. Yeah, I wouldn't say burden, but just, just like not, non-productive. Like not, not, non-productive. I wouldn't say cost, because that dehumanizes it. But not, uh, not productive to the level that he could be. And so, you know, for Ashoka, it's like, how can I get this guy to live a better life, be a, be a happier person, you know, to be more in tune with his dharma? And obviously, you have to free him from whatever sickness that he has. And I think that's, that's how he's thinking about it. He's not thinking about it uh, from, from, a, from a top-down perspective. He's not thinking about these are his toy soldiers and they got to be good so that they can serve the state. He's thinking about it from their point of view, that how can they live a better life? How, what can I do to enable them to live a better life? The first thing that I can do is make sure that they're not sick if they don't have to be. And so I, I thought that was really cool. And, um, you know, that type of compassion is very rare from a, from a leader like this. And he also did some cool things like started infrastructure projects to allow people to be able to travel throughout the country. But he also made sure that it wasn't just a functional type, I built a road and then that's it. He made sure that he planted uh, large fruit trees all around these roads so that if you had to travel from one place to another, you could take a rest under a tree to have shade. And mm-hmm. then these trees had fruit so that you can sustain yourself. So he sort of really thought about how to make you know, life better in that situation if you're traveling, you know, which is other countries like Rome would just put a road and say, that's it, you know, you're on your own. Right, but I mean, at the same time, it was better to have a road than just a dirt one. You yes, know? absolutely. But I mean, I, I do understand where you're coming from. Yeah, and that it's, it's just that it, it's going above and beyond. Yeah, it's, it's going above and beyond. That's the difference between a working society, a good society, and a great one. And so he also, um, no cost, well, maybe, you know, they, I'm sure they had to pay taxes. Um, but he created wells all throughout the empire so that people had water to drink. Um, and yeah, so he, he, you know, he, he felt like if people were happy, they would be able to conform better to morality. And this is something else that he did, which I thought was an innovation. And you can, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, Nick. Um, but he appointed officers of morality. So he had a department that had people that he personally appointed to go around and try to cultivate virtue among the people, to try to um, you know, establish morality among the common people, just letting them know that, hey, this is a way that you could live, here are the benefits. And not only did he uh, use these ministers to establish morality, but he had benefits to if you lived a moral life. If you were a person that had proved that you were a, had integrity, you were a moral person, he would give you uh, welfare benefits. You know, uh, I'm not sure if these were cash payments, if this was land, if this was favors, but there was a system where you would be rewarded if the ministers reported that you were somebody who was outstanding in your community. Hmm. I would... Hmm. Well, that's it's, one that's an interesting it's, thing. Yeah, it's quite unique. Yeah, it is. I would say it's fairly unique. I would say if I were in their position, honestly, the best method would be a simple would be tax reductions. In all mm-hmm. honesty, yeah, probably. 
Yeah. I think that would be a pretty decent way of it because you could go more than that, but the problem is if you do that, people could become dependent on you. Yeah. So the best, I would, I, in my opinion, the best way of doing it would be just lower taxes. Yeah. If it's proven that you are someone of a higher, a what, higher morality, yeah. I guess you could say, more upstanding. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And uh, when you were mentioning about Ashoka picking the ministers, if I remember right, in the book that we were talking about earlier, it actually makes a reference to uh, how to, uh, what to see in ministers. Basically, the screening of them mm. to see if they're good. So okay. if I get if I ever get the chance and come across that book again, I'm definitely gonna get a hold of it. So I yeah, can we'll read put it. it in the uh, in the show notes. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes, and we can get that later. We'll update it because I think that is that's very to me that's very interesting as a as a politician, a political science major. Mm -hmm. uh, what you would what Ashoka or no no what this person would want to look for in a minister because yeah, that's always what, what makes that's a good always, ruler yes. and what kind of ministers to look because for in order to be a good ruler. you're putting someone in a position where they're telling other people this is the right behavior so you mm -hmm. have to make sure that these ministers have integrity yeah. you know like this minister is righteous you got someone who's not righteous telling other people how to be righteous it's just not going to work well yeah so, but then there's also the one where uh, picking people to support you or be a part of you, whether yeah. it's a business, whether it's the military or uh, or in politics. The thing about it as of right now, it's more of an art. Yes. You see, because here's an example. Well, here's the way it goes. Yes. Because you could pick anyone that sounds like they have a good moral standing, mm -hmm. but the minute you give them power, everything changes. They become the yep. exact opposite of what you thought they were going to be. And then the people that you thought were the evildoers or dressed bad and they were going to do evil things. But then when you put them in power, in some cases, they end up being the best you will ever find. It's, it's, a, it's a talent to, be, to, a be, talent. to be able to look, to, at, to, yeah. to, to look at someone, to interview them, to be around them, and then to make the judgment on whether this person is a righteous person and yep. is suitable to lead a position of authority where you're going to be then you know, propagating righteousness and cultivating righteousness. Mm -hmm. That is something that I think Ashoka could do. From what I've read about Ashoka, yeah. he has that particular skill, that talent yeah, to because, discern yeah. people's hearts. Yeah, the last thing you need is a minister that becomes the puppeteer yes. that controls the ruler. Yeah. So basically, almost a kingmaker. If you that's why I think it. it had to be, that's why I think it made sense to be an appointment type thing, you know, where it wasn't a, a gradual, you know, the, the ministers decide for themselves who could be the person, you know, who could be in. That's why he had to be like, nope, only me. I got to choose because if I give it to, if I institutionalize it, institutions always become corrupt over time. Mm -hmm. And so while I'm alive, I can do this job. Uh, I mean, you might disagree, but I, I thought that, I thought because Ashoka is such a unique person, he's so rare that he would be able to handle this type thing. And we're getting to the end here, but Ashoka was able to live for 40 years. Peacefully, That's a pretty good reign. Peacefully, after this Caliga, Caliga battle, Kalinka battle, Kalinga, Kalinga battle, and he was able to live peacefully, prosperly. His, his empire flourished. You know, the arts, the academics, the culture, everything you could possibly imagine was able to flourish for 40 years. And um, real quick, before I pass it on to, uh, no, no, you know what? Let's go ahead and go back to Nick. And mm -hmm. so, what happens after Ashoka once he dies? And then, um, you know, we don't have this philosopher king, virtuous leader, who was once an evil man, but... Well, sadly, the empire starts to crumble. That's the sad part of what happens when you have a, a set of great rulers 
One, it's kind of hard to uh, be of equal standing to them because they yeah. were so good. But uh, it was on a downward spiral for the next 50 years after Ashoka uh, passing. Uh, they, from what I've read, they said there were several reasons as to why the empire fell apart, but predominantly it was because they did not have the leadership to it. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened when Ashoka died, his, one of his kids that took over, he was blind. Uh, yeah, that, that's going to be one issue right there. And then the other sons, one was a governor, not necessarily great in one of the provinces, and then the other one, if I remember right, was not exactly a good leader in general. So mm -hmm. the only yeah, one that was good was the leaders. blind man. Yeah, and that's, I mean. Yeah, that was, that was the first problem. Second problem was that once the blind man, once the blind one died, his son took over and he wasn't that good of an administrator either. So just incompetence, it, and gra a gradual, much. a gradual. Gradual Because people sense weakness. People sense weakness and oh, when, yeah. it's, when it, they, it's an opportunistic thing when these tribal leaders can, can spark up revolts yeah, and carve away territory mm -hmm. here and there and undermine the system here and there. And eventually these things collapse. If yeah. you don't have a ruler that can, can, keep, can preserve that power, can well, preserve the traditions, preserve yeah. the... The, I would see the integrity. This is where I find interest. I find it great that the the three great Marian rulers were able to set in road networks to better administer the empire. Mm -hmm. However, the empire was still too large. Right at the it's, height of Ashoka's reign, yeah. it was said to be somewhere around fifty to sixty million in his domain. That is unprecedented. That is you have huge. almost no empire has been yeah. in that time period has ever been of that size. It's huge. Not many could boast that kind of size. You could say maybe the Chinese were able to get that big, but again, that's very rare. Yeah. Now, the reason why I said that was a problem was that unless you're a great ruler, you can't be there all at once and yep. you need good ministers and you need a lot of them yep. to be around. But if you're not that good of a leader, you're not going to be that good at picking ministers. Or if you did pick good ministers, those ministers will take advantage of you. Yeah. And then everything starts spiraling so, so down. Unfortunately, you had, you know, three great leaders. And then after Ashoka, things kind of got out of hand. Yeah, it's and, just started. And, and a gradual degradation of the mm -hmm. empire. And it's, it's so, not just that. You also remember when you mentioned about revolts yeah. from all the previous rulers? Now, remember, this is an empire that was built in one generation right. and was only slightly increased on the second generation mm -hmm. and again slightly increased under the third one. Now think of it like this. You have multiple nationalities that were just conquered into one political entity. Right. What happens when all of those great rulers are gone? You got oh, incompetent yeah. rulers or incompetent ministers that are not able to be uh, not able to fulfill the desires, mm -hmm. needs, or wants of those 60 million subjects. Those 60 million subjects are going to either revolt or they're going to start reminiscing of the past yep. and they're going to want their want own their independence. Autonomy back. Yep. Or in the case of what happened with the last monarch in 8185 BCE, the generals get power hungry because they say, oh, this is something I can take advantage of. Exactly. I can become the ruler of the nation, and I know it's best. Well, Nick. So I will get rid of the ruler. It seems that we're running out of light. The sun seems to be setting on us because we uh, are at Taylor Murphy's History Building 
and above us there's no roof so that's why that's why the video might be getting a little bit darker you're right uh, yeah. and the sun is also setting on this podcast i think uh nick i have a i have a quote that i want to give by ashoka to end it but before we give this quote given all that we've talked about the history of the Mauryan empire this great character of ashoka who is really someone who's really interesting who if at the wisdom factory we value wisdom and virtue and if you do as well ashoka is someone who is uh, is a case study in virtue mm -hmm. because most virtuous people aren't all good they have a history like all people all people yeah, have problems they have their problems now ashoka was the extreme of that and he was also the extreme of virtue. So there's a lot to be learned here um, for potential leaders, you know, for people who are just interested in morality and ethics, people who are interested in, in you know, in, in governance, people who are interested in, in power, uh, people who are just interested in humans, you know, I think at the end of the day. Um, so I would highly recommend Ashoka as, as someone to look into and to sort of set up as a... Um, What's that term? A moral exemplar? A moral uh, an example? Uh, no, it's it, it's a concept. I think it's like someone who is like who lived righteously. You know, who didn't talk about it. They actually lived righteously. And I think he became a moral exemplar. Obviously, someone you know, to look up to. Yeah, someone to look up to. Someone to model as far as modeling virtuous behavior. Mm. I think he's someone who fits that mold. And Buddhists certainly used him as you know the the the, the prototypical archetypical leader of someone who's righteous and who right. has power and who exercises that power in accordance with Dharma. Um, so that's what I want to say, uh, Nick, before I leave it to you. Um, but in terms of the wisdom factory and what we're trying to do here, the wisdom and virtue, uh, and, and all that we talked about today, what are some final thoughts that you have uh, to, to leave the people with? I mean, it could be anything. I would say it's kind of something uh, towards Ashoka, because we both mentioned that he was both extremes. He was both one of the best rulers that ever exists, but yep. in the beginning, he was one of the most terrifying. Oh, yeah. So under the book that we kept referencing and also to the Machiavelli, what makes a strong ruler is one that's not only loved, but also feared. Because what made Ashoka very special was that even though he had this trend of going into Buddhism or making Buddhism a very much a major religion up to the modern day, people saw him as weak because of that viewpoint and they tried to take advantage of it. However, he had to be the monarch of an empire of 60 million or so subjects. He had to be able to make the call and kill opponents when necessary. And I think that's where a lot of people seem to miss. It's that, yes, it's good to be a great leader. Don't get yeah. me wrong. However, people will always see that as a weakness, and you need to be willing to make the tough calls. Sometimes you need... It, it's, the best way of putting yeah. it is... Sometimes you need to break some eggs in order to make an omelet. The perfect, and that's a, and I and I love that point, Nick, because that is so important. Because we talk about wisdom and virtue, and I p particularly, um, you know, value virtue because that's something that is not taught anymore. Mm -hmm. That's a lost art. And no matter where you look, the Hindus have a conception of it that perfectly aligns with the conception that the Africans have with the Mbutu tradition, to what we have in the Christian tradition, to what uh, Aristotle had in, in, in classical philosophy. I mean, this stuff exists. Your stuff exists, and it does empower you. But people have a, a, a totally wrong conception of it, that if you're going to be virtuous, right. you're going to be weak. 
And the best way that I can help you understand what we know, what we mean by virtue, is look at a hero. Look at a hero. What is a hero, right? A hero, look at Captain America. A good or, person. Or Iron Man. A good person, but he needs to throw punches a, in order exactly. to save people. A good person, but if you're an evil villain and you're trying to mess with this person or mess with innocent people, you're going to get knocked, the, the, you know. Yeah, you're going to be knocked out knocked pretty quickly. Out. The, the hero is always very strong and always very competent yep. and always uh, willing to use that mm -hmm. force and that strength against the enemy yep. of righteousness. And that is where I think we'll get into Ashoka's final quote for this amazing podcast that I've had, oh. Nick, with you. And that is, May the partisans of all doctrines in all countries unite and live in common fellowship. For all live to profess a mastery to be attained over oneself. Hmm. And that mastery leads to the purity of the heart. Mm. So, man, I kind of wish I could uh, recite the sutra right now that I mentioned earlier, because I really like that sutra. Because, again, it, you know, it's so on yeah, humility. look at the sutra if you guys want some more some more quotes like that. Um, you know, to me, to me, well, what does that quote mean to you, Nick? So to me, it, it, to, okay, so may the partisans of all doctrines in all countries unite and live in common fellowship. For all alive profess mastery to be, to be attained over oneself and purity of the heart. So that's just like, you know, all, it doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what philosophy, philo you know, moral philosophy you have. It doesn't matter what sect you're a part of. Everyone understands that you have to master yourself. You have mm -hmm. to master your emotions. You have to master your decision making. You have to master um, making the choices that are going to bring you closer to living your purpose in life. Mm -hmm. and, um, and a huge part of that is, you know, you need to find a purity of heart. A purity of heart that only comes with living virtuously and righteously. Right. And I don't think anyone's going to have a perfectly pure heart no. ever. We all wish. Yeah, but you have people who are on the spectrum of a wicked heart and a, you know, a more pure heart. Um, is there anything else that you can derive from this Ashoka quote, Nick? You would, or that uh, pretty much? I would say not necessarily that quote, but that quote definitely okay, fits quote. With, the, with the sutra that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And that in order to be, how to achieve happiness or to be a good ruler, mm -hmm. you know, you need to have inner restraint, yes. a very victorious one at that. And then in order to have that great inner restraint, you have to have good humility. And in order to Very have important. good humility, you know, something along the lines of you need to have a good heart. You need to be one of stable mind, you know, all of these different things and not be uh, weak minded or weak willed. You need to have a strong will in order to achieve some of the goals mm. that you have in store, whether it's the tangible, intangible, the physical, the non-physical, the mental or the uh, or the ones that you uh, touch, see, yes. or hear. You know, you need to be able to uh, make those kind of decisions, even if people, even though that you may know that it's the best decision and everyone else knows it, people still not want that. Either because it changes everything about their lives or it threatens their benefits. Here, here. Well said, Nick. Well said. Well, it was our pleasure to bring to you guys the information of the Maori Empire. It was a pleasure to do the research. It was a pleasure to talk about Ashoka. And Nick, 
it was awesome to listen to you explain the Mauryan Empire and help me get an understanding of it. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank you guys for tuning in. Subscribe below. And that is it. Golly. Okay. Let me see if I can get the mic out. Where are you? But golly, that why did that bee have to get in the way? Twice. Twice, I kid you not. And then I saw a rat in the corner. You know, did you not see those, those rats? Oh, I didn't see any rats. I saw like two of what? them. One good size as big as my palm. There was rats here? 